if you've got your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 2. Um, that's where we'll be this morning. And uh, the McCary family read that passage. Uh, and it's, it's the classic Christmas passage as we're looking through the, the birth narratives of Jesus this Advent season. This probably is the most uh, familiar, uh, famous of all the, the Christmas passages. It's the, it's the one that is on the Charlie Grant Brown Christmas special. You know, it's very moving. You watch that and reads the, the Christmas story. This is what we call the, the Christmas story. And it came to pass in those days. It's the way the... King James has it, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed or, or registered. I, I, it's a, I mean, I, I confess to you, it is, it's an, it's an emotional chapter, the whole chapter of Luke chapter 2 for me. I, I feel the weight of the story uh, take, take hold of my heart when eternity b breaks into history, the, the light shines into darkness. It's the day that the world changed. God had been silent for 400 years. In the words of the prophet Malachi, the, the, the last book of our Old Testament, you know, the, the last words of, of Malachi hang in the air. The, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Those are the final words of Malachi and the world had been waiting ever since. Well, since the days of Malachi... Um, the, the world had, had actually changed. It had changed a lot. Rome, who was nowhere in sight when Malachi was writing, is now the undisputed superpower of the world. And Octavian, who's known as Caesar Augustus, he's the emperor. And there, there'd been wars, there had been corruption, there'd been bloodshed, unparalleled. And now the great Octavian, the, the great Caesar, he's gathering the world to count his kingdom, to, to fill the military ranks and institute yet another year of taxes. All of this was in the name of peace. It was called the Pax Romana, a time of of peace, but it was a peace that uh, that was fra it was the fragile hope of peace that the world was clinging to. I say fragile because if you were just a regular person, you know, a commoner living in the shadow of Rome, uh, at least there wasn't war. I mean, that might be what you would say to yourself. But that did not mean in any way that it was paradise. It was not utopia. There was oppression. There were heavy tax burdens. There were powerful and corrupt leaders installed in all the provinces. And Israel was exactly the same. 
The Roman military, they were harsh, they were abusive. But it was a time of peace simply because there was not war. The protection of the kingdom came at great price in those days. That's how Luke begins this chapter. He's painting a picture. It's, the, it's this backdrop, sort of the world stage that he's giving us in those days. I haven't preached this passage very much in my life. I, I've hardly been a Christmas Eve around here that, you know, that it hasn't been read or a Christmas morning around our living room, um, you know, in front of the tree that we haven't read this passage and I've meditated upon it. And, uh, but as I study the passage, I realize there's so much here. And so much of it is so beautiful. And so I want to spend a few minutes talking through the beauty of the passage. I, I think it is full of hope. I think it was full of hope when Luke wrote it and the first audience read it. And I think it's full of hope this morning, 2,000 years later. It's meant to cause us to worship. It is an event in history that changed the world and God orchestrates every detail. So look at it with me. In chapter 2 of Luke's gospel, we'll look at a few verses and then talk about them, and, and we'll do that all the way to the end of this passage this morning. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Like I said, Luke, he starts by giving us the stage of world history. And he begins with this imperial edict of Caesar Augustus. Caesar ruled, Caesar Augustus, Octavius, ruled from 27 B.C. to, to A.D. 14. That the Roman Empire at his death was... 3.34 million square miles, more than the mainland of the United States. 70 to 100 million or more was the population. And the vibe in Rome was that Caesar Augustus, he was worthy of, of worship, that, that he was like a, a savior or a, a god even, or, or maybe the, a, a son of a god. And peace and happiness is what he sold, or at least the promise of it. And so, so this is the setting of the war, Roman world, Caesar Augustus's world. But the thing is, the way that Luke's going to tell the story, none of the things that are taking place in Luke chapter 2 are owing to Caesar. It is not Caesar orchestrating the events that are going to change the world. It is God who is orchestrating these events. And it is the sovereignty of God that's in view of this story. The most powerful man in the known world, Luke is saying, is merely a 
pawn in the hands of God. See, we know the story. We know what's supposed to happen. The child is to be born in Bethlehem. That is what all of the prophets said. It's what the wise men knew. It's it's what the lineage and the family of the Messiah uh, demanded, that that is where he was to be born, in Bethlehem. Yet, the story starts with a teenage girl that lives in Nazareth, visited by the Holy Spirit, and you immediately are struck by, wait a minute, the, the, the virgin, this little, this teenage, this girl, she's not in Bethlehem, she's in Nazareth. And you think, why, why not just pick a girl from Nazareth, from, from Bethlehem? Make surely there was a girl in Bethlehem that God could have picked. Why does the story begin in Nazareth and not Bethlehem? And the answer is, is because God is going to exert his rule. God's going to get the glory. And what looks like an act of Caesar is actually a perfectly timed move of God. All things are under his control. All movements by his hand. And it reminds us, I'm reminded, that God is not efficient as much as we want him to be. I mean, as much as we want to help God write the story, you know, God, there was a, there's a whole lot more efficient ways to do this. We remember this is his story. This is his plan. What one writer calls it the secret working of God's providence. You see, from before the foundations of time, which means before the heavens were spun into place and before the earth was formed, before there was a sun or a moon, before there was even one star, before there was such thing as a 24-hour day, God ordained this day. And before the creation of man, God planned the incarnation. God created what he would become. And he ordained the day his son would enter the world. That means God not only knows the hearts of every man and every woman that would make up the genealogy of Jesus, he also knew and directed the hearts of every man and every woman that would make up the genealogy of Caesar. There's no person, there is no family, there is no event or series of events, there is not one single heart that beats in which God is not sovereign. Caesar sits in his palace and makes a decree thinking all 
all the while, he, this is a supreme exercise of his will, the, the ultimate flexing of his emperor muscle. But he's just a tool in God's hand. God had promised that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. And that promise would be fulfilled. And God's providence that way works in all of our lives, in all the area of our lives. And here, it's, it's geography and it's politics. But His providence is not limited. And there's no part of our life that's off limits to the hand of God. And at the same time, Providence is often undetected until later. So the hand of God's providence is, is oftentimes unseen in the midst of, of what is mundane or, or ordinary or irritating or, or devastating. In the moment, it's, it's hard to see. It's usually, it's only later that as we look back, we, we examine it, we, we ponder it, that, that, we, that we find the evidence, the divine fingerprints left behind, letting us know, oh, oh, of course he was there. That's how God works. Well, picking up in verse 4, Joseph, he also went up from Galilee. From the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Three times we're going to be told about the swaddling clothes. I, I might argue that from this story that the most profound and significant acts of God come in the most simple and lonely ways. See, we've come to think in the last hundred years that the most important events on this planet are the ones that are covered in the news. we come to believe that the most important people among us are the wealthy and the powerful and the famous. And the reality is when you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't see it that way at all. In fact, if we were to take the economy, the biblical economy of God, I'd argue that a world peace summit held amongst the nations is not nearly as significant as a mom or a dad gathering their family around God's Word. Or one of you in this room 
giving up some time and experience of your life to lead a small group of 11-year-olds to a deeper understanding of a big and marvelous and loving God. I was with the, the, the middle school and high school leaders last Sunday night here at Bethel. I was talking with them and listening to them tell stories about sitting in a, in a room or sitting in a circle with God's Word open with, with your kids, with, with my kid, and how they're laboring over this text and uh, over their lives so that they are able to connect the, the, the truth of who God is to their real life. And again, that that's probably the most important thing happening here this morning. It's not what we're seeing. It's all of what we're not seeing that's taking place. See, I think God forges beauty, the, the beauty of his glory. It's forged out of the humility of weakness and suffering and hardship and anonymity. So one of the striking things about Luke's narrative is how simple it is in contrast to how great the events are. I don't know. I mean, the, the births of each of my children were an event, at least from my perspective. And I have stories and, and details and people that were there and funny moments that happened and scary moments and, and, and things that Leslie said uh, on drugs and <laughs> pictures and videos. I mean, one of the things that you will not find is a meeting me with, hey, tell me the story about the birth of your child and, and me saying, oh, well, you know, we went to the hospital, they were born and we took her home. I have a story about that. I remember telling Leslie, I was like, you know, I, I don't know how bad this is. I mean, I had my tonsils out when I was little. I'm sure that's a lot like this. Put that in the category of things not to say if you haven't been there yet. The, the way Luke tells it, it's a sparse telling. Here's a teenage girl with the man who was to be her husband. They're in a stable and they're alone and we don't get much detail. The, the experience is common enough to any woman who's delivered a child. He doesn't need to give us much detail there, but what we are left with is this is a simple account, and they are alone, and the child is born, and she wraps the child tightly in a cloth, and she lays him in a feed trough. And the title of that scene is, Unto Us a Child is Born. To us a son is given. God entered the world. Peace between heaven and earth just began. And, and here's what's crazy. Today, right now, you could get on an airplane, fly to, to Tel Aviv, 
rent a car or take a bus and go to Bethlehem, you can go there. You can go to the cave. A church has been built around it called the Church of the Nativity, six miles from Jerusalem. You can actually go and see the place. And scholars are pretty sure that's as good a place as any that Jesus was born. It's very likely you can see the, the exact place. To, to get into the to the church, you have to go through this small door. And in fact, it's, you, you have to stoop. You, you, have to, you have to get down. So some of us don't have to get down as far as others of you do. It's known as the door of humility. It's probably built small to keep enemies from riding their horses through, but it, it's a great symbolism. You, you've got to stoop to enter. And as cool as all that sounds, it's one of my least favorite places to go. I don't like it. Not because of what it is or what it was, but because of what it's become. It's a circus. It's a bazaar. Eternity steps into history, God becomes man. You know what we do? We sell souvenirs. You can buy all the souvenirs you want there. Verse 19 tells us what Mary did. She treasured these things in her heart. She, she pondered them. Which means she weighed them, she, she meditated on them, she treasured them, she worshipped. And I don't think we do that enough. Listen, I, Christmas, it, it, it is, it sounds like I'm, you know, a curmudgeon. I'm not a curmudgeon. I'm a really fun guy. And there are a lot of things. We have a lot of Christmas things and you and you and you'll bake some things and eat some meals and spend time with family. At least I hope you do some. We'll take pictures. We'll put them on Facebook or Instagram or Johnny. You'll make TikToks. You'll be all the Johnny TikToks to watch. If we get through the whole season and we never take time to just stop and reflect and sit and worship, so we don't do enough of that. Just a quiet morning and a cup of coffee or a, or a silent night somewhere between here and there where you sit and you just read God's word or you meditate or you pray or you give thanks or you reflect in some way on the fact that God became man and dwelt among us. and we missed it, then all of this is just sentimentality. 
Oh, this is just a hallmark holiday. It shouldn't be. It's the opportunity as the church that we have in the midst of the whole world to remember. Luke, he's a, he's a historian. And it's, you know, there's no doubt in his research to write his gospel that he interviewed Mary. I mean, there's no doubt about it. In fact, there are things that you see in Luke's gospel that clearly would have come from Mary. But, but most scholars, they, they, they point to the fact that this story... This probably is not from Mary. She's probably not the source. In fact, it's, it's puzzled the, the scholars over the centuries because the narrative is so sparse and it's pieced together in places. And I think the reason is, is Luke says, hey, Mary, tell me about that night. She says, no, you know, Luke... That one's locked up here. That's for me. It's something I treasured in my heart and have pondered. Got me through some of the hardest and darkest days of my life, Luke. You've got enough information. You know the story. It's okay to say that. This is mine. It's good for us to follow Mary's cue. Lord, I want to treasure time with you. Do you have that time that you've treasured, that you've pondered? So there's moments God's broken into your world, holy moments, if you will. Treasure them. Let them drive you to worship. The, the sense of this deep abiding intimacy that you have with God. You know, this, the, the, the intimacy that's too great for words. That's oh, what I want for you as your pastor and as your friend. For you to worship. Well, the, the baby's born, and, they're, and then they're, the Lord's going to provide an audience. And picks up in verse 8, so in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. Of course they were. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger and suddenly there was with 
the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those whom he is pleased. When the angel went away with them to heaven, into heaven, away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord's made known to us. Bertamy thinks what isn't recorded in what they said to each other was, Did that just happen? Did you see what I saw? They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lion in a manger, and they saw it, and they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. The baby's born, and then the scene changes. We're taken to a hillside outside of the, the city, and it's night, and, and there's a group of shepherds, and they're watching over the flock, and an angel appears as the first preacher of the gospel, which, and he says, I, I bring you good news of great joy. This is the gospel. I bring you the gospel. And angels are scary, I guess. Every time you see one, they always say, don't, fear not, don't be afraid. And they've come from the presence of God shining with his glory. That's fearful. Now, the thing about shepherds is they didn't have a great reputation. They're, you know, at the bottom of the rung in the social ladder, and they're the, the nobodies that live amongst all the somebodies. That's who they are. We could say it this way. If you were accused of a crime and the only witness to take the stand in your defense was a shepherd, you're in trouble. They're lowly men. And this is who the angel is sent to to proclaim the good news. This is where the gospel is preached for the very first time. And it's good news of great joy for all the people. It's for everyone. It's for the whole world. This whole world that's gathered by Caesar and to be counted and taxed. It's good news for all the people. And then you look at the next line. For you, unto you, is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Unto you. It's personal. It's intimate. It's meant to be. It, it, it's for you. The lowliest, the weakest, the marginalized, the nobodies amongst the somebodies. He's born for you. And these three descriptions of Jesus, the only time they appear together, Savior, Christ, Lord, all together in one sentence. And if you've ever sinned against God, and you have, you need a Savior. That's why the angel told Joseph, you'll call his name Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins. 
Only God can forgive sins against God. That's why later you find out the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He was a Savior, born a Savior. But not to forget the repetition of the swaddling clothes no doubt points us to the end of the story, the grave clothes, the stable trough that likely was in a cave points us to the burial cave of a Savior. He's Christ, which means He's the anointed one, the Messiah, the, the one long predicted and long awaited, the King, the the prophet, the priest, all the promises of God are summed up in him, yes, and amen. And he is Lord, the ruler, the sovereign, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Lord of the universe. Unto you, your Savior, your hope, your everlasting God. And interestingly enough, this is the last time the angels preach the gospel from here on out. It's given to men. And first of all, the shepherds. The nobodies on a hill watching sheep. And then there's this remarkable scene where heaven comes down. Heaven comes down and glory fills their soul. It's a breathtaking scene. If one angel left those guys shaking in their boots, can you imagine what an army of angels did? That's what it means, the host. means army. So, so you might think about it this way. One angel comes, takes one angel to deliver the news, the good news. The, the, the news of the greatest revelation of God ever. It takes one angel to come and deliver the news. And it took a whole army of angels to respond to it. It gives us a hint of the magnitude of the event. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace amongst those whom he is pleased. And not the Roman kind of peace. A Jesus peace, the one that Isaiah says, it's a peace that will have no end. And glory comes, it's revealed in the birth of this child, the Son. God's peace comes everywhere that he is received. And of the increase, there will be no so when Isaiah is writing about it, he's looking forward to the event. Luke, he's looking back at the event. They're, they're looking at the same event. They're both seeing the same day. Isaiah is full of hope. Luke, he's full of fulfillment. And in the next time in the Scripture that we see the angel army, the, the hosts of angels all assembled, It's all the way at the end in Revelation chapter 5. 
The seals are about to be broken, and John's there, and history's coming to an end, and Jesus is at the throne, and, and one angel asks the question, Who, who's, who's worthy to, to open the scroll and break its seals? In fact, in John 5, John, the, the apostle, the beloved of Jesus, almost falls into despair. How how will the seals be opened? And then he says, but then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's the pattern. Infinite glory of God. And man receiving in the midst of it unending peace. That's the incarnation. That's how you sum it up. Even the pagans in the first century, they knew they had a need for peace that was beyond what Rome offered, what one first century pagan writer. While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion and grief and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns for more and even outward peace. So how do we get peace? How are we, how we counted amongst the, those whom God is well pleased? Well, it's, it's not by adopting tradition. It's not by church membership or doing good works. It's, it comes by faith. comes by worshiping and receiving the Son of God as your Savior. It comes by saying, I, God, it's your story and not my story. I want to be a part of your story, of what you're writing. It begins by, by saying to God that you need a Savior. And that Jesus is the only hope, the author of your life. Reminds me, one of my favorite bits is the beginning, the, the introduction to the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, if you don't have that or you know somebody that does, it's a great Christmas gift. It's just incredible. I've read it with all my kids, and I continue to read it after my kids are gone. And it starts like this. Now, the Bible is not a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story of a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince 
who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. See, the best thing about this story is that it's true. There are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them, and it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the puzzle, the missing piece in the, in the puzzle, the the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you see the beautiful picture. Don't miss the picture, friends. Take the moments to ponder, to treasure in your heart the gift of Jesus. Don't miss the fact that what he has done then, he is doing now in the midst of your life. That his fingerprints are all over everything about who you are. Trust him. Worship him. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that this would be a Christmas season that is full of, of our faith being refreshed. We're mindful, Father, we, we want to be honest with the reality that for some this is a, a fun season filled with joy and, Father, for others like Chad said last week, this certainly could be some of the hardest days of our lives. For some this morning, whether you're in this room or whether you're online with us this morning, I know there is loneliness and heartache and a lot of confusion. So, Father, I pray for those friends that you would draw them to Jesus. You would draw them to the hope of peace that comes only from your Son. Father, for all of us, I pray that in the midst of the busyness, we would find a quiet moment, a, a silent night to sit and remember and to reflect and to ponder and to treasure up in our heart the beauty and glory of your Son. And so we ask you to do what only you can do in our hearts and our minds. And we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.